Today, we continue to reflect on the Jacob narratives of Genesis. At times, I will enter into the account with my imagination, attempting to feel what the character feels, even guessing about motivations. But I'm confident you will know when I'm doing that and will be able to see the difference between the bare text and where my imagination is just filling in the blanks. Last week, our readings concluded with Genesis 30:22, where we read that then God remembered Rachel, God listened to her, and made her fruitful. To be remembered by God is to have God respond to your deepest needs, such as Rachel's desire for a child. The birth of Joseph is the beginning of an entirely new chapter of salvation history. The birth of Joseph is not just a blessing for Rachel. In the weeks ahead, we'll see that Jacob's preference for Rachel also leads him to prefer Joseph over all his older sons. And the consequences of his favoritism are at least as big as those stemming from Rachel's for Jacob. But for now, Jacob's story still has much left to be told, and we simply need to take note that the birth of Joseph marks an important new stage in Jacob's life as well. He decides that it is time to leave Haran, to leave his father-in-law Laban's service and return to his home in Canaan. But he has lived there for 22 years, and his wives and children have known no other home. How will they take to the notion of leaving? Before he breaks the news to his family, however, he needs to broker a deal with Laban that will set him up for a livelihood that will sustain him in Canaan. With two wives, 11 sons, and a daughter, he can't just show up at the family tents and say, Mom, Dad, I've come back home. I only had one wife and two children when I pulled that one on my parents. Now with three adult children and a granddaughter, I have to worry sometimes if what goes around comes around. Jacob tells Laban that he intends to leave, and Laban is instantly alert to the fact that Jacob will not want to leave empty-handed. Laban seems prepared to offer him something. He knows that God has blessed him with an abundance because of Jacob's presence. How does he know this? He has been told by divination. Divination is a practice that occurs frequently enough in the Bible. Some means of divination smack of idolatry or even witchcraft, but not always. In God's instructions to Moses in Exodus 28, the high priest is given two mysterious objects known as the Urim and Thummim to be used to divine God's will in matters important to the whole people of Israel. Whatever means Laban used, today they would be regarded by most of us as the equivalent of using a magic eight ball instead of prayer and reflection to determine God's will. As readers, we should be alert to what we know about these characters. Laban and Jacob have entered into these negotiations with a solid history of cheating. Whatever they agree to, neither one expects to come out a loser in the bargain. Both of them will do anything underhanded necessary to ending with the upper hand. So far in their relationship, Laban has always gotten it his way with Jacob. Jacob suggests something that would seem to be very fair. He would like his servant's pay to be no more than the dark sheep and spotted goats of Laban's herds. Evidently in the Middle East of the time, and perhaps even in the present, sheep tended to be gray with only the occasional sheep showing up darker. The goats tended to be dark brown or black, but sometimes there would be a few with white spots. 
Jacob only wants a few sheep and a few goats. This shouldn't diminish Laban's wealth by much at all. And so Laban agrees. But before Jacob can collect, Laban culls all such animals from his herds and gives them to his sons. Jacob has nothing to collect. Ah, but Jacob isn't planning to leave the next morning. He will manage Laban's herds for a while longer, and he comes up with two ingenious methods for increasing the number of spotted goats and dark sheep for his own herds. We would call at least one of his methods magical, but ultimately, the fact that Laban's sheep and goats bore prolific numbers of dark sheep and spotted goats is something Jacob says was God's doing. Jacob has outwitted his very crafty father-in-law. Now all he has to do is to convince his wives to leave with him, along with the children. It should probably surprise us that Leah and Rachel are united in their support of Jacob's plan to leave Laban's service. That Laban is their father and that Haran is the only home they have ever known would be very important to them. Yet even bigger is the fact that the two have not been inclined to graciousness in sharing Jacob as their husband. Leah has been very fruitful. Rachel has only born Joseph. Jacob loves Rachel. His attitude towards Leah doesn't even get mentioned, which is probably to say he has always put up with her. Leah and Rachel are united, though, in support of leaving their father and the grandfather of their children and moving to Canaan with Jacob. In the annals of biblical history, it is a rare moment of family unanimity. But just to keep this in context, they are united in their plan to break up their old family. Their solidarity with Jacob is carefully presented to us so that we will sense the tension and contrast provided by the scenes of departure from Haran and arrival in Canaan. We see Jacob and his family are a single entity, united, not a confused mob of infighting individuals. They are family. Their departure from Haran is treated as an escape, and Jacob fears Laban's response, especially because he has heard word of Laban's sons complaining that Jacob's wealth has come at their expense. The danger from Laban is far greater than Jacob realizes. His beloved Rachel has stolen her father's household gods, and in a moment of rashness, Jacob swears to kill anyone in his retinue that is found with the idols. These idols may be of value to Rachel, especially if they are the means by which Laban has been accustomed to practice divination. It has been suggested that she defiled them, however, by sitting on them during her period. But that may well have just been a lie she told Laban in order to keep them hidden in the saddlebag she was sitting on. But little does Jacob know that his own words have put Rachel in grave danger. Anyone who has read the dreadful account in the book of Judges of Jephthah slaying his own daughter to fulfill an oath will shudder if their eyes even flit across Jacob's oath. The one you find them with shall not remain alive. But Rachel's cleverness saves her. Everyone lives by their wits in the Jacob narratives. Failing to find his household gods, Laban seals a covenant with Jacob wherein they promise never to enter each other's territory with malice in their hearts. He kisses his grandchildren and daughters goodbye and returns to Haran. Because this covenant was made at Mizpah with the words, May the Lord keep watch between you and me, many Jews and Christians 
have adopted the practice of sharing separate halves of a Mizpah medal with similar wording with a friend or loved one with whom they have had to physically part. The path ahead for Jacob and his family, however, is fraught with more danger than Laban might have posed. There is someone ahead who truly has had murderous malice in his heart for Jacob, his brother Esau. And Jacob knows that he deserves Esau's wrath. Jacob wants to know, after so many years, what ill will Esau might still bear toward him. And so he sends envoys ahead to inform Esau of his pending arrival. The news they return with is ominous. We found your brother Esau. He is now coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Esau is coming for him with a small army. The family that is so united around Jacob, Jacob himself must divide into separate camps in the hopes that if Esau's forces slay the one camp, the other might escape. The situation also leads Jacob to an act of contrition. He is unworthy of all the many favors God has shown him, but now he must ask God to please protect him and his family from the hand of his own brother. After he prays, he gains the wisdom to put for the first time in his life, to put his cleverness to a good use for mutual benefit rather than simply for his own self-reward. Jacob has arrived at the moment of self-discovery in his life. He is just now able to see himself as someone who has been called to be responsible by God and who must now face the consequences of his irresponsibility. This very much reminds me of one of the most difficult parables ever told by Jesus, a parable many mistakenly feel justifies theft. It's usually called the parable of the dishonest steward, and it is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Then he also said to his disciples, A rich man had a steward who was reported to him for squandering his property. He summoned him and said, what is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship because you can no longer be my steward. The steward said to himself, What shall I do now that my master is taking the position of steward away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they may welcome me into their homes. He called in his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? He replied, One hundred measures of olive oil. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Sit down and quickly write one for fifty. Then to another he said, And you, how much do you owe? He replied, One hundred cores of wheat. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Write one for eighty. And the master commended that dishonest steward for acting prudently. In verses 8 through 9, Jesus explains his parable in this way. For the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves with dishonest wealth, so that when it fails, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Think of Jacob as the dishonest steward. God has given him many gifts, among them a very sharp mind. He has his wits, that's for sure. But all his life long, he has used them only for personal gain. But now, like the steward in the parable, he knows the jig is up. 
He is being called to give an accounting for his greed, a greed that has robbed his brother of his birthright. Jacob has been a child of this world, concerned only with his own gain. But now, facing mortal danger for himself and his family, he prays for deliverance, and the deliverance comes in the form of his wit. He will now use the wealth he has gained to make friends on the day of his accounting. Jacob divides up his flocks and herders and sends them in wave after wave to be delivered as gifts to Esau. After all these years, Jacob is seeking reconciliation. But is it too late? Will Esau accept the gifts and greet him as a brother? Or will he take the gifts and come for the giver as well? Night has arrived and Jacob sends his loved ones across the Wadi Jabbok for their safety and then returns to the Wadi alone. It is a night for deep questions. And he begins to wrestle with them in the depths of his soul. Who is he really? What has he done with his life? What will become of him? A man appears. He is a strong man and he begins to grapple with Jacob, but Jacob gives back as good as he gets. Their struggle lasts through the night and into the dawn until the stranger is finally able to deliver a real blow to Jacob, dislocating his hip. But Jacob still refuses to let go. I will not let you go until you bless me. This stranger, this being from another realm, asks him for his name. Jacob, he tells him. No longer, he is told. You shall no longer be named Jacob, but Israel, because you have contended with divine and human beings and have prevailed. The one who is now Israel, the one for whom the entire nation of Israel will be named, wants to know who he has been wrestling with. But the only answer he will ever have will be in the name he now bears, Israel, Yisrael in Hebrew, sounds in Hebrew like it has been taken from Saritha Elohim, meaning you contended with God. Indeed, Jacob has discovered who Jacob is. He is one who struggles with God when he struggles with men. But he will also be a broken man from now on. Not only will Jacob limp through the rest of his life, he will no longer be in charge of shaping his own future. Others will do that for him. What will happen when he and Esau finally meet? Jacob has used his wits, but the future, good or ill, will be in Esau's hands. Esau, however, has been placated by the gifts. When they finally meet up, Esau has no anger left in him. Jacob approaches him with seven deep bows to the ground, with his wives and children following behind him. Esau runs to him and embraces him. What's with all the animals, he asks. I'm a wealthy man. I don't need them. Keep them for yourself. There is never any doubt that he will actually take them, however. So complete is their reconciliation that Esau urges Jacob to travel with him the rest of the way. But Jacob still fears his brother. He offers excuses and safely removes himself and his family from Esau and his 400 men. Jacob settles in Shechem, a city that will be an important center for the nation of Israel, and Esau will settle to the south in what will be known as Edom. Jacob's days as the leading figure in his own life have now come to an end. From now on, his children will be in charge, and they will bring him nothing but tragedy and grief. Jacob has 11 sons at this point, and by all accounts, only one daughter, Dinah. 
She is Leah's child, and Reuben and Simeon, Jacob's first two sons, are her full brothers. In this family of diverse parentage, Reuben and Simeon are naturally very protective of their sister. Despite their male-dominant culture, we can be sure that being the only girl in a family with 11 sons made Dinah very special. Unfortunately, the text is less concerned about Dinah than it is with what men do about her. She is raped. Then she is negotiated over as a possible bride for her rapist. Reuben and Simeon concoct a scheme whereby they can seek revenge for her rape. They accept a proposal to enter an alliance between the Shechemites and themselves with the proviso that all male Shechemites be circumcised. And then during the painful post-operative recovery, Dinah is rescued and all the male Shechemites are slaughtered. It is an act of bloodlust, a savage revenge that goes far beyond punishment for raping their sister in that it wipes out an entire community, not just her attacker. Jacob is appalled. His son's horrific actions mark his family as a danger to all their neighbors. He fears no one will welcome their presence anywhere, and they may even attempt to eliminate the threat they pose. And so Jacob's story no longer stars Jacob. His sons have taken over. Jacob's life will now become one of responding in grief to their misdeeds. But wait, what about Dinah? What about her life? She becomes just a name in the biblical text. We never learn anything more about her. And that is why it is so important for us to enter even the biblical text with our imaginations. I give the challenge to you and your imagination to provide Dinah a story that does not simply begin and end with her rape.